dia de sol eu fui pra trabalhar. Beautiful souls, I'm Camille. And this is Erica of the Healthcare from the Soul, the Healer's Journey podcast. Where we listen to stories from heart-centered healthcare providers who are rewriting their story as healers of this world. Now more than ever, they feel dissonance within themselves and the system and are answering their soul's calling for something more. Erica and Camille host retreats around the globe for healthcare professionals interested in discovering more about their life's purpose in the healing arts. To learn more, head on over to the show notes. Let's go to the show. Hello, hello. Hi. I'm Erica. And I'm Camille. And this is Healthcare from the Soul. We're so happy to be joining you today. And today we have Dr. Juan Angel Davila, (laughs) the ATX vegan doc, right? That is right. And we're so, so, so happy and grateful that you're joining us today. Just to kick in to the Healthcare of the Soul podcast for those of you who are just joining us and for you, Dr. Davila, Healthcare from the Soul is a dive into somebody who has worked in the conventional realm of healthcare and has had some very stressful situations or some trauma or something life-changing that allowed them to reflect and look at how they were approaching medicine and healthcare and maybe took some space and then came back in the healing arts in a different and new and fresh way. So today we're talking to you. Can you tell us about your healer's journey? Sure. So as far as medicine, like me getting into medicine from when I was little, it's a a story that I always tell and I've embellished it over the years because that's what people want to hear, right? Like this like fancy story. So you get into med school, but the stripped down version of what really happened in real life is this. And so I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and when we were when I was about nine years old, we moved to Laredo, and we were new there. We had family there, but we were new. And me and my brother got really sick, like it was terrible. But we didn't have a doctor yet, and my dad had just started his job, so we didn't have insurance. And my mom took us to see. If, she called around and was like, "Hey, can somebody see my kids?" And eventually, somebody said yes. So we end up at this doctor's office, it's like one in the afternoon, and we're there for probably four to five hours, just sitting in the waiting room. Like, what the heck is going on? My mom is constantly talking to the receptionist. And eventually the receptionist is like, yeah, we're not going to see your kids. I don't know who told you that was going to happen. And so my mom lost it because we've been sitting here for four hours under that impression. And so I've never seen my mom go crazy, but she went like legit crazy. She started yelling at these people. She started like breaking stuff, which is very outside of character for my mom. And my memory could be foggy. That might not be true, but, but she was crazy. Like it was, she was, it almost looked like she was feral. So the doctor actually came out and took her into his office and I heard arguing back and forth in there and less than a minute she came out, she swooped us up and we went home. I think they tried to reschedule us for some other, like three weeks later. And she was like, yeah, by the time you see my kids, they'll be dead and walked out, which I think a lot of us have heard patients say stuff like that. 
And so, yeah. And so I was like, man, stuff like this should never happen. We should have enough doctors and, and people to do this stuff. And so that was kind of like the first inclination of like, I can help fix this problem. And I was like nine at the time, which is like, why am I even thinking about fixing a world problem at that age? But anyway, that was kind of like my first. And so my parents kind of continued to reinforce that. I went to a high school program that was for that. It was a pre-med school. And so we were all in this, or I was in this program that was geared towards putting us in, in medical school ultimately, or dental school. Uh, graduated, got into a pre-med program, did the whole summer thing, and then got into med school and did all that stuff. And then, yeah, and so all of that's kind of the standard going through the process. It was real difficult for me. I had a lot of issues in med school just because I didn't learn how to learn properly, but I figured it out. And, you know, that was an interesting, overwhelming experience. But yeah, then I got into practicing medicine and, uh, you know, I started figuring out that it's not all black and white. There's so much gray area in the middle. And as a physician, you think like, uh, or as a, me, I thought like, as a physician, I'll have a lot of the power to dictate kind of how these things are going to go. But when you work for a big hospital system, no, you don't have any of that power. You're kind of just there to make money for somebody else. And so it became very evident relatively early on in my career that the bottom line was the most important thing. And so whenever I would have conversations with administrators or other people, the conversation was never in the terms of it's the patient's best interest for me to do this. I would do a lot of back research to be like, this will be more financially lucrative for you if we did this. Because nobody would ever argue that point. If I argued the point of, hey, it's better for the patient if we do X, Y, Z, they'd be like, well, how would we implement that? And back, whatever, whatever, whatever. But when you said it's more financially lucrative for me to do this, there was absolutely no questions about how that was going to get paid for. It made sense because it was going to make them money and they didn't care. And then, and then, you know, we did the thing. And so I got into the habit of doing that. And then I came across things that were kind of near and dear to my heart, which is lifestyle medicine and medicine that's focused on the root of the problem, which is our lifestyle, the way that we eat, the way that we put toxic substances into our body, not sleeping appropriately, not managing stress properly. Like all of the things that damage us that we do to ourselves became a hyper focus for me. A lot of it had to do with my personal life. A lot of it had to do with my because my wife was very like mindful like that. And so I started doing training. I got a second board certification in lifestyle medicine. And I went to this company and I said, hey, I want to do this thing. And they said, well, how's that going to financially work out? And it doesn't, like the system doesn't pay for that. And so I had just started that. And so I hadn't really like delved too far into that. Like how financially we can make it feasible because that's kind of, the system doesn't want to do that. And so I kind of started taking inventory of my life and was like, am I even happy here? I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I've, I've been working at this company for five and a half years. Every day I was seeing like 20 or more patients. I was double booked. So, I, you know, where it should have been a patient every 15 minutes, which already wasn't enough time. Every hour, one of those would be double booked. So it would actually be like less than that, like 12 and a half minutes per patient. 
and you're just kind of wheeling him through and that is way outside of my character and demeanor and i was just like what the heck am i even doing here like i'm not helping anybody i don't have enough time to help anybody in fact i'm probably hurting people because i'm not giving anybody advice that's going to have long lasting effects on their life goals and then my dad got cancer and then it just like that became like a spiral downward because my dad got cancer and he, you know, he had claimed that he had been healthy his whole life and, and all that kind of stuff. And you looking back at pictures of him and, and more objectively, I'm like, man, you were overweight. You really didn't eat right. There was a lot of lifestyle things that he didn't do, but he didn't smoke. He was relatively active. He didn't manage stress well or his diet well, but he slept well. I think he did better than most average people, but he was about par, you know, he's just on that side of the bell curve of average. But he got cancer and it was pancreatic cancer is the worst kind. And one of the things I remember him saying before he passed away in August of 2022 was, sorry, of 2020 was, if I die, it's because I'm too stubborn to change. And that like burned itself into my brain. Like I just never forgot him saying that to me because I said, what a terrible thing. Like you're so stubborn that life, you're sacrificing life because of stubbornness. And so that's a thing that I talk to my patients all that like, yeah, man, I know we all have ways of doing things, but let's not be too stubborn to make changes. And so that was me, like in my where my path was in health in medicine. Like I enjoyed being a doctor, but I didn't love it. I liked being at this hospital system, but I didn't love it. But I was getting so many benefits of financial stability and insurance and all these other things that ancillary things that I was stubborn about leaving because I was afraid of what was on the other side. And I'm like, that, what he said to me then, I was just like, that's the same thing that I'm doing to myself. I am killing myself to be here because I'm too stubborn to leave because I don't want to see what other things may lie out there and put myself in that position. And so in February of that following year, I was like, I'm out, you know, I'm leaving. I sent a message to the, the people that needed an email. And mind you, like I was in a rural market they don't have a lot of providers out there and it's very difficult for them to find providers for that area. And that clinic was actually keeping the hospital that's in that rural market financially stable. So like the, that clinic was financially holding a lot of things up and our clinic specifically where I was seeing a, a large volume of patients was doing the bulk of that work. And so when I said, I'm out, I was really expecting there to be like, what do you need? But the response back was, yeah, sorry to hear that. We'll get everything ready for you to go. And so I was just like, okay, so I guess I'm not that important after all, which was a good lesson to learn, right? Like sometimes we overvalue, we think that we're valued at more than we are, which might be true, but nobody will ever tell you that. And so I left, I opened my practice and I've actually, it was great. I got to do medicine the way that I was doing it. I had a huge volume of patients come over from that practice where I was at joined me at this practice and we were doing really well and I was working part-time for another company. And so this is kind of the most recent developments because I've been working for, uh, with another company and they recently 
wanted me to go full-time with them. And I'm actually going to do that because they've given me so much leniency in the way that they're going to allow me to run my practice, almost mirroring what I'm doing right now, but also getting the benefits of everything that comes with a bigger practice. Plus, now that I've educated myself more on how to get lifestyle to become more mainstream, I've developed an entire protocol for billing for providers where we can make lifestyle medicine more financially feasible for people with Medicare going forward. And so we're, I'm working on those models. And so for me, like my goal was to have my own practice and make, you know, make healthcare affordable for people. Like that's a thing that I enjoy. But just like with most people, like we all have a bunch of things that we're like really focused on. Like everybody's got a bunch of like, I'm going to do all these things. And really there's maybe one or two things that you really care about the most. And for me, it's lifestyle medicine. Like I really want people to stay away from the need for medications and treat their illnesses with good lifestyle changes. That's the way we fix healthcare. Like it's broken because we don't focus on the right parts. We focus on the parts after somebody's sick. And as humans, most people don't focus on getting care or preventative care until they're sick. And so for me, I'm trying to really work on the way that we can preempt a lot of that, get people to stay healthy, do the healthy things so we don't have to have a healthcare system that's built that way. And yeah, people are going to get sick, but those should become the exceptions, not the norm. And that's where we're at right now. Everybody's sick and we have a small population, a subset of population that's not sick. And so I figured I could make a bigger impact by working with this larger group, by getting these protocols in place where maybe even bigger place would be like, oh, what are you guys doing in this particular aspect that you guys are doing so well at? And then we can take those protocols and start making them more consistent across the board with a lot of other companies and major medical groups. And then we can have a huge shift. And so for me, it's like, that's what I want to do. I don't want to be the outlier who's got a great idea who fixed something, but then is only taking care of 400 patients in the middle of downtown Austin by himself and doesn't really get with anybody else versus being a part of this bigger group. Yeah, I'll have to see more patients and sacrifice a little bit, but for the potential benefit of making a huge change and impact to the way that medicine is practiced, yeah, I'll make that sacrifice. Like I, that's my dream and my passion to do that. And so that's where I'm willing to stick my time. You know, mm -hmm. when I was at that other company, we weren't working towards that goal. It was just a machine. And that, that I, I couldn't be a part of that. Can I take you back to being at the rural healthcare practice where you wanted to implement lifestyle medicine? And you said that it was just too difficult. You didn't really, you couldn't figure out like how to make it mainstream at that time, how different would your day-to-day -day practice have looked if you were to have focused more on lifestyle medicine? Yeah. So at my practice, so once I left there and I opened my practice, like those conversations or the clinic visit would be, it was like night and day. So when we look at the practicing of medicine in, in that rural market, when I was there before we were really focusing on the lifestyle stuff, we would have patients come in, we would kind of chat a little bit. And then we would get to the mean, meat and potatoes of their diseases and really just adjust medication. So what are you taking? What do I need to adjust? Are, what's your diabetes doing? How do we adjust? What's your blood pressure doing? How do we adjust? And so a lot of it was just focused on the logistics of adjusting medication and disease management in that aspect. When I shifted over to being more lifestyle medicine oriented, 
which I couldn't implement there because of the time component. So all of my appointments in my clinic were an hour long. And it's like, okay, we're going to do the logistics part because I, I can't have you running around with a blood pressure of 190 over 100, right? Like that's just ridiculous. We can't do that. But I also need you to make a lifestyle modifications so that you're not on this pill for the rest of your life because this also has inherent risks. Plus, there's so much benefits for you to improve your diet outside of just your blood pressure. There's a lot of studies coming out now talking about salt. And we say you need to reduce your salt intake to, you know, to less than two grams or less than a gram, depending. And so it's like, okay, that's going to help your blood pressure. Well, there's a bunch of studies now that say, yeah, reducing your salt intake not only helps your blood pressure, it also reduces your risk for developing diabetes. It reduces your cardiovascular risk, that which we already knew. It reduces your risk for certain cancers. It reduces your overall longevity of life and the quality of life at the end of the life. So it's like, holy smokes, we've been telling people to stop salt intake for blood pressure only. Now we're getting all these other benefits. Imagine what will happen if you say, hey, eat beets every day to lower your blood pressure all the beautiful like other ancillary benefits you're going to get from now I'm having more fiber. I'm eating this amazing uh, vegetable that's having a huge impact on my cardiovascular system. The fiber's reducing my cholesterol. All the phytonutrients are dropping my risk for cancer. Like there's so many ancillary benefits. And so it's not just about, you can nitpick for the things that are problematic for the one patient, but you can hit so many other things by convincing them to make this change. But that takes time to do that. Like it, it's a conversation about why are you going to do that? Why does it matter to you? And so you can't figure out why something's important to somebody if you just talk to them for 15 minutes and then you're on to the next one. I think, um, wow, what a story. For one. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to go back. When your dad said to you, I'm too stubborn to change. Did you have a conversation with him about that stubbornness? and? So a lot of what we had been doing up till that point about his cancer was really my brother, my brother's a lawyer, by the way, my brother, myself and my wife had all sat down and watched a bunch of documentaries about people with cancer and dietary and lifestyle changes that they could make even during their cancers that would have huge impacts. And so we started creating a dietary program for him kind of in the midst of his cancer. And we were constantly being like, hey, man, you need to do this. Hey, we need to do this. Like, these are the consequences of not fault. So he was getting a lot of that from us, from my mom as well. My mom was taking care of him, obviously, on a daily basis because they lived together. They were married. And so he was getting a lot of the, the conversations from all sides of people being like, hey, man, you need to do this. And it's not that he was actively pushing against us. Like, he was there was days that he was really trying and days that he wasn't. And I know a lot of that had to do with the cancer, just having an effect on his hopefulness and his just overall general sense of well-being. And so the way that he said it was not in a, like, this is what's going to happen. It was more of a, I'm trying, but if it doesn't happen, it's because of me being too stubborn. So it was more of a, like, if I die, it's because I'm too stubborn to change not kind of like when I die, it's I'm too stubborn to change, which I think would have been a lot more hurtful to hear him that say. Yeah. And so, yeah, so he was try not to say that he wasn't trying, but more often than not, he was just like, I don't want that. And I don't want to do that. And I'm not going to do that. 
And so there was a lot had transpired. He had had cancer for like a year and a half up until that point. He had been put in remission and then it came back. And I think that when it came back, he lost a lot of his hopefulness. And yeah, I think that was having a huge impact. But, you know, it, a lot of that too is like, we, we have to preempt that. Once we get really aggressive about doing something, once a bad thing's already happened, it could already be too late. It's like trying to drive more timidly when you've been barreling down the highway and already hit a bunch of people. Like the, the damage has been done. Like hopefully you can mitigate anything else from happening, but that's never a guarantee. And so that's why for me, it's like, let's not ever let people get to that point. Cause then it's even harder because you're having to deal with so many other things. I asked for personal selfish reason, because I'm still <laughs> my sister was on a similar path. She was diagnosed with cancer in 2019 and she passed in 2020. And a lot of what my mom says and that she constantly reminds us of is that it was it was a soul choice similar to being not wanting to change. She wanted to change. She wanted to do all the things. But at that point, it was just, it was just a hard, yeah. So that's why I'm asking. <laughs> Try uh, to understand I mean, that. <laughs> change is difficult. And I'm sorry to hear about you. Just, that's rough. But it, it change is difficult. I tell people like, imagine how difficult it would be for you have never gone to the gym to all of a sudden decide, I'm going to go to the gym six days a week, every week for the rest of my life. How hard is that to do when you're sleeping right, living a normal life, you don't have anything going on with you. And all of a sudden I want to implement this entirely new lifestyle, right? To help improve my health, which I don't feel anything wrong yet. That's a really hard thing to do. And it's a really hard thing to maintain. And we know that because all the data about like new year's resolutions is there about how many people quit. And so now imagine like trying to implement that level of change when you're stressed out, you're worried about whether or not you're going to be able to make it tomorrow. How are you going to feel tomorrow? How are you making your family feel? What burdens are you, extra burdens are you putting on everybody else? And so you add all of these things on top of like, not just the disease process, but all of the social, economic, emotional, psychological components to it. And all of a sudden it's like, yeah, it's hard to make a change when you're in the midst of all that. And so my dad said that, and that sticks in my mind, but I don't blame him for not making a change, right? Like he tried, he made the effort, but that change, that should have been done years ago. We should have been in a good place before we ever got there. And that's the thing that for me has bothered me the most where I'm like, I should have been more aggressive maybe earlier on, but you can't know that. And so I don't blame myself for that, but you can't, cause you can't know that. And so it's that like, it's very easy to get wrapped up in like, kind of like, again, the one-sidedness of a lot of the things, but everything is so multifaceted that it's complicated. And so, yeah, it, I think about that as well, where it's just like, man, I wish you had just done this thing. And it's like, yeah, but how hard would that have been for him? Like the guy could barely eat like two spoonfuls of mushroom soup, like, how hard would it have been to like start cramming down like uber amounts of vegetables into his stomach? Like he just wouldn't have tolerated it. So yeah, it's hard to make a change without any disease. So yeah, you stack all that other stuff on top of it and it is just brutal. 
So I would like to know what you've seen in the outcomes of your patients when we're looking at change. I can see that potentially if you have somebody who's coming to you um, more in the, I'm gonna use this word boutique medicine and that's not the correct term. <laughs> but direct primary direct care, primary or, care concierge. or concierge medicine. And they are driven, maybe they've seen multiple other different traditional type medicine physicians or providers and they've sought you out. So they're already prepped and primed to make a difference in their in their health, right? Health, sure. health and lifestyle. Versus what you find maybe at this other clinic that you're working at currently where people maybe are choosing you based on or choosing the office based off of insurance. So I'm assuming that those are two different populations. Maybe the outcomes of those two populations are different. And how do you elicit or foster people to want to change when they're in that healthier or even non not healthy part of their life? Yeah. Well, a lot of it. So, so as far as like the division of the population, it's actually very similar. So when we look at like the populations on both sides, most people will call me and show up because they're, they don't feel right. And so that's irregardless. Like I'll get calls to my direct primary care clinic and people are like, I feel sick, I need an appointment. And the same thing happens at this other clinic that I'm at. But I also get the calls where it's like, hey, I'm 32, I'm super healthy, I just need to come in for an annual visit. It's like, okay, cool. And that happens on both sides as well. And so the population surprisingly is not overtly different. The, as far as like people coming in motivated to make a change and, or if they're young and already healthy, like how do we motivate them to make changes? I always kind of go through my six like things, most common disease causers, right? And so like, you're looking, we're talking about diet. We talk about sleep. We talk about uh, exercise, physical activity. Uh, we talk about stress management. We talk about toxic substances, you smoking, you drinking. And then we talk about interpersonal relationships. Do you have a support system? Those six things, you hit those six things right, or even five of those six things right consistently, you have really good health for a long time, right? And so we go through that. And so when we talk about diet, it's like, hey, what does your diet look like? And nine times out of 10, people are like, ah, you know, I just eat stuff. And I'm like, okay, wrong answer, man. Like, even if you like, even if you say like, oh, I go out to eat every day, also not good, but at least you're aware. But when you're like, I just, and you don't know what you're eating, that's a problem to me. Like, you're not paying attention. It's not a mindful activity for you. You don't think about it. You just do it. A lot of people do that, right? We're not actively thinking about what we're eating and putting in our body. We just do it because it's another thing. Just like nobody actively thinks about showering. It's just a thing that you have to do. So we get that way about food. And that's kind of one of our biggest disease causers. And so it's like, okay, hey, man, you're not really being mindful about your food. So I need you to be mindful about two things about what you're eating. Number one, make sure you're eating a bunch of fruits and vegetables. And by a bunch, I mean, three of them, like pick three things in the course of the day and just make sure that you're eating those three times a day. And, and number two, I need you to eat 35 or more grams of fiber in the day, 
fiber is like your best friend. Your gut loves it. Your cholesterol loves it. Your health, your body and health love fiber. So 35 grams of fiber or more a day. And so now all of a sudden, like you've created something that they have to be mindful about. So now I actually have to actively think, am I getting enough fiber in my diet? We're not tracking macros. We're not tracking protein, carbs, nothing. It's a simple thing. It's fiber. How much fiber does an apple have? Boom, the internet will tell you. Okay, that's this. I'll write it down. How much fiber does an orange have? Okay, this much. And now I can just make sure that I collectively get in those things. And so people usually think about fiber. They think about subliminal. But I always talk about fiber and fruit because people will kind of gravitate towards fruit and be like, oh, I need to get my fiber in by eating fruit. But then they're also eating those three vegetables a day that have also a bunch of fiber, but they're not counting that fiber because I didn't talk about fiber and vegetables. I talked about fiber and fruit. And so you kind of increase the intake and now all of a sudden they're having these really healthy, at least adding a healthy component to their diet. But again, that's an active process. I talked to them about why is fiber important? Why is being mindful about your diet important? Why is all of these things? And so it is a conversation. It is a long conversation because we always, I always think about those commercials in the like 90s where it'd be like, the more you know, or knowing is half the battle. It's like knowledge is important, right? Like understanding why is important. When your doctor says you need to take this blood pressure medication, why is the first question that should be out of your mouth because your blood pressure is too high. Okay. Is there anything else I can do about it? The answer should be absolutely yes. But as a physician, you're just like, take this pill. I need to go to the next room and I'm out. And that's kind of the standard of medicine, unfortunately, where it's like, oh no, there's a bunch of stuff you could do for your blood pressure. If you increase your intake of beets, walnuts, dark leafy greens, they have a bunch of nitrates that have a tendency to dilate blood vessels, which will drop your blood pressure. You eat beets every day, your blood pressure is going to drop. You're going to have better control going forward. There's a reason that a lot of athletes are eating a ton of beets now because it gives them a boost in nitric oxide, which helps open blood flow to their muscles and get a better pump. You do that on a regular basis, you drop your blood pressure. And so there's a lot of things that you can do, but again, it's conversation and knowledge to do that. And in the system we have built, you can't sit there with somebody for 30 minutes, 40 minutes and have that conversation. They want a numbers game. You see more people make more money, not their quantity, not quality. And that's where there was an inversion in my clinic where it was more quality than it was quantity. So I was seeing like seven or eight patients max a day. Everybody was getting their hour. Everybody was getting a conversation about why are we making these changes? Uh, and a lot of them had great outcomes. I mean, I had some patients, even when I was at the rural market that were very motivated. And so I would spend the extra time with them which was bad for me because then I'd get behind, but it was really good for them because they were like, oh, okay, so I'm going to do all these things. And then they'd come back four weeks later. And now all of a sudden I got to cut their diabetes medication in half because their sugars are running super low, their blood pressure dropping off. So I got to be mindful about their, uh, their blood pressure medications. I had a patient who just cut sugar out altogether, like all processed sugar and came in and was like, the dude was like 300 pounds, but he cut all his processed sugar and was like, my joints don't hurt anymore. And I'm like, yeah, it's amazing, right? He's like, yeah, I'd feel less swollen. My joints don't hurt and I can move better. It's like, yeah. And all you did was cut the sugar out. Imagine what will happen if you start cutting out all these other pro-inflammatory foods from your diet. And, you know, that motivates people. Like, I feel a difference or I see a difference. And now I'm going to keep doing the things that you've told me because I feel that. 
And clearly you're on to something here. And so that's how we start making those changes. So, and that'll happen with the fiber guy, like add this fiber or add these fruits. And then in three weeks, it's like, oh man, I feel less bloated. I'm not eating as much. I have more energy. And it's like, yeah, because that these things make a difference. And so like, okay, well, I can do that. So what else should I do? And then, okay, well, now you're motivated and excited to do the next thing. Um, because everybody can be better. There's, oh, I can be better. Like, you know, I, I always like my patients to know, like I'm broken too. I, like, I'm not perfect. Like I have downfalls and, and pitfalls and stuff. And I'm always working on myself, but you have to constantly be thinking about like working on yourself. Like, how do I get better? And so that's a, you know, a thing that patients unintentionally learn is like, oh, now I feel real good at this. How can I make this thing better? Now I've identified that I have another problem. And how do I fix that? Well, I'm gonna go talk to my doctor because he helped me with this thing. And so maybe he can help me with that thing. And so then we get into the process of like, I am personally, or the patient is identifying their own limitations. And now we can help them work through that. And those things result in reduction of disease over the longevity of their life. Yeah, I think there, there are like, what, 10,000 medical diagnoses. And what is the most common treatment of all of that is lifestyle changes, right? Absolutely. As providers, what do we do? We give a handout. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Good exactly. luck. And right. And then it's like, well, I guess this should be easy. I just need to change my diet, exercise 30 plus minutes a day and sleep better and decrease stress. And then you're like, okay, I'm shoving it between my seat and mm -hmm. my, you know, in my, my car, car. never to look at it again. <laughs> um, so how are you implementing? So now that you're kind of uh, between the rural clinic where you're seeing patients for 15 minutes and then seeing patients for an hour at your private practice. And now you're somewhere in between. So how are you talking about lifestyle within more of a traditional setting again? Yeah. So the, the clinic that I'm at right now, the visits are, so my clinics are 20 to 40 minutes. So if you're a brand new patient, that appointment is 40 minutes versus if you are an established patient, the visit is 20 minutes. So there's as much as like, that doesn't sound like a lot of time, that's a lot of time, especially because I talk really fast. Um, and so the, that, that, that first visit ends up being the best visit because that's when I could sit down and really go through and tease a lot of the stuff out and create that plan. Uh, and then I talk to the patients about what I think the most high yield ch lifestyle changes will be for them. So like if somebody has diabetes, the highest yield lifestyle change for them is gonna be diet. So that's what we're gonna focus on. We're gonna hyper-focus on diet. And yeah, that other stuff is important, but this is gonna get us the most benefit in the biggest reduction of mortality. So best longevity, that's the, that we're prioritizing this. If other things develop, then we'll kind of hit those things, but we'll, we'll we figure out, I figure out what's gonna be the priority for them. So every time they come in, it's kind of like, you're, they're gonna be given, they're given a task, right? Increase your fiber, increase your fruit reduce this, or I try not to reduce anything. I try to just increase everything and the other things kind of reduce themselves out of existence. So eat more plants, more, focus on more fiber, let's eat more fruits. And then they come in and it's like, did you do the things that I told you? Yeah. And this was hard and that was hard and we'll troubleshoot a little bit. And it's like, okay, if you hit more than 75%, we'll add something else to the, to the mix. If you didn't do that, but let's get a little bit more diligent about doing it and tracking it and, and whatever. Um, and so the focus has come off of like, managing your sugars. My patients are real good about like bringing in their sugar log. And I can look at that thing in two seconds and be like, yeah, okay. 
this is my this is a diet problem versus this is a treatment problem. Um, and so if it's a treatment problem, like, oh yeah, this is happening. And so this is on me. I need to make an adjustment in your medications and we're going to do that. And then I'll tell them what I'm going to do. And then we move on I'm like, okay, but all these other things are diet problems and we need to really hone in on that. And, th and then we go into a longer spiel about focusing on those things. Uh, same thing about exercise and sleep and all that kind of stuff. Well, depending on the patient, we'll focus on that. So a lot of it gets, because I've done it so much now over the last year, it's, there's more of a rhythm about it. Like I can talk about it easier. I can recognize what was like a bunch of fluff that I was saying versus what's actually beneficial for the patient. And so the year and a half that I was at my clinic really helped me perfect that conversation. Uh, I, guess, I shouldn't say perfect, but improve that conversation where it's more concise uh, and I can c condense it without overwhelming myself or the patient with a bunch of ancillary stuff. Um, if they ask and they want to know, we will definitely have that conversation. And sometimes you can go a little over because, you know, you want to inform people properly. But sometimes patients are like, yeah, man, uh, you know, you've explained it all before and I'm good with what you're saying and we'll go on. Um, and so it's really just dependent on the patient and the mood, but I'm always ready to explain anything to anybody. I love how applicable and accessible and practical and almost simple you have brought the world of lifestyle medicine to your patients and to the world because it's not um i think a lot of practitioners who are still very much steeped in the conventional world look at lifestyle medicine still as something that is way out there and the way that you explain it the way that you break it down is just really beautiful and i we've all worked with low income, you know, underserved communities and a lot of um, immigrant communities as well. Mm -hmm. And that's like, for me, that's to know that it's applicable and accessible. Is, yeah. yeah. Well, one of the big things too, for like my wife and I, so for like the last year of residency, when we had my daughter and I wasn't getting paid very much, my wife was no longer working. We ate rice and beans for a whole year. So we were unintentionally vegetarian. Uh, even though we had made the decision to be vegetarian, we weren't intentionally. And so that's what I tell a lot of my patients. I'm like, dude, if you eat rice and beans every day for the rest of your life, nothing bad is going to happen. Like there's all the carbs, all the protein and all the fat that you need in those two things. So if you're like, oh, if I tell you, hey, you need to be vegetarian and cut out your meat intake because it's making your cholesterol high. It's like, oh, what am I going to eat? Well, the other stuff that's on your plate already. And rice and beans is like a staple for almost every like cultural like community. Um, and so like, I'm like, dude, if you eat that every day, you wouldn't have a problem. I can guarantee that because I did that and I didn't have any issues. That was like the fittest I felt in a long time. Uh, and every day after that, it was just adjustments. Um, so it. yeah, it's, it's kind of like meeting people where they're at. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we don't, that's what we don't do in medicine. We don't have a good sense of meeting people where they're at, but a lot of it too is like, you know, who's practicing medicine? Like I'm Mexican, Mexican-American. I was born in the United States, but both of my parents were born in Mexico, but I live, I visited my grandma in Mexico all the time. I spent months in Mexico uh, and spent a lot of time on the border. And so that's my community. Those are my people. So when they're like, well, what am I going to eat? It's like, well, when we went vegan, my wife would make enchiladas and took out the meat and took out the cheese and would replace it. And she would make, you know, 
chile relleno, but with something else on the inside. Or we would make, you know, flautas, but there was no chicken. So it was like, we could still make all the foods that we love to eat. You just change one thing about it and it makes it a world of difference. And those are the people that get sick, right? Like African-American communities, uh, Asian communities, Hispanic communities. Those are the people that get sick. Those are the people that are more prone to disease. And those are the people that are more likely to get poor healthcare because the person that's providing them healthcare doesn't resemble them and doesn't understand what they're going through. And so it's a, there's a huge cultural component to it as well, where it's like medicine is unfortunately kind of, I don't know if it's intentional or unintentional, but it's driving that way. And so once people get to be a little bit more culturally aware about the things that are going on and how big of an impact that has in food and how that food is driving those communities, then we can start fixing our problems. Like a lot of these people live in food deserts. Like even here in, in Austin, there's areas where they just don't have a store to go to that has fresh fruits and vegetables. It's like, how am I going to tell my patient to eat fresh fruits and vegetables? And they're like, oh yeah, well, the HEB is like five, 10 miles away and I don't have a car. It's like, yeah, well, that, th those are, those are systemic problems that we have to fix. Um, so yeah, again, there's a million things that we could try to focus on trying to fix. Right. And so uh, it, it gets to be hard sometimes. You're doing a beautiful job. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Very grateful. Okay. So a lot of our listeners are in medicine and healthcare right now and are very interested in the actual journey from the break from the conventional into the world that you imagined, I'm sure as a nine-year-old, um, wanting to practice medicine and impacting lives, right? And so is there a come to Jesus moment um, I know you mentioned your father and what he said, but can you take us back to what you were feeling? Like, was there any hesitation to switch over or, um, change and was like, was there lots of conversations with your wife and with yourself? Yeah. As far as the way I was feeling was just sheer terror. Oh. <laughs> it was just like the most terrifying thing of my life, right? Because uh, this is like an issue, and I think it's, again, a little bit systemic, regardless of what kind of provider you are, you're, you're trained in a culture that is a hierarchical culture, where it's very cut, dry, black and white, this is right, this is wrong. And if you want to succeed here, you're going to do everything by the book the way that it's written, and you're not going to deviate from it because as soon as you do, you're going to lose your license. Nobody's going to want to see you and everybody's going to call you a quack. And so it, like, you're just like, if for me, I was just like, holy shit, like what? Sorry for cussing. Uh, I was like, holy man, what's, what's about to happen? Like, this is terrifying. And I, it's endless nights with my wife about talking about it where I'm like, is this the right choice? Am I doing the right thing? We're not going to have any money for like six months. Like, I don't know if anybody's going to want to come see me. I don't know what we're going to do. Like financially, I'm like terrified, like medicine, I'm terrified, the health of my family, I'm terrified. Like I, there's just so many like question marks. I'm just like, I don't know what's going to happen. And my wife was like the most supportive person. She was like, it's, it'll be fine. She's like, the worst case scenario is you call that company back and you say, hey, I changed my mind. I want to go back to work. And they're not going to fight you on it. 
And I was like, yeah, that's literally the worst thing that could, I'm never going to do that again in my life. Uh, that is literally the worst thing that can happen, but you're right. If I do that, if it gets to be that bad, then sure, I can go back over there uh, and I'll have a job. And, you know, that was definitely the worst case scenario. So, yeah, it's terrifying. So I'm just trying to encapsulate what that feeling is for people so that they know that, like, that level of terror. Yeah, that's normal. That's like absolutely normal. And it was for me. Um, And so it wasn't as much as a like, I'm out of here, like clean break. Like it was a very stressful time um coming to that decision and then questioning that decision every day for the next year and a half like just constant some days i'd get up and i'd be like we're doing this this is awesome i got patience and everybody's happy and we're making a difference in the world and some days i'd wake up and be like what the hell am i doing why am i here this is the dumbest thing i could have done we're gonna go broke i'm gonna get evicted from my house like it's just terrifying um and so like every day was a struggle Um, And so having support, actual support from somebody very close to you to constantly be like, it's fine. We're fine. You're fine. And it's going to be fine. Almost every other day was like critical for me. And I'm like, I'm a relatively emotional person, not superficially where everybody can see, but at home, my wife has seen me cry hundreds of times. Um, But I get to be like that because I get overwhelmed because I don't want to disappoint my family. And I don't want to disappoint my kids. And I definitely don't want to disappoint my parents, right? And so a lot of that is constantly there. And so I need constant like motivation to know like, yes, I'm on the right path. It's going to be fine. And she was very helpful with that. Uh, And that's personal to me. Everybody's a little different personality wise. But for me, that's what helped kind of keep me going. Um, And there was a ton of research, right? So I had been looking into direct primary care two months before I left. So as soon as 2021 rolled around, I was already kind of looking into it and seeing like, what does it all entail? What do I need to do? Uh, And if you just think about it in a quick thought, it seems terrifying and undoable because there's so many things that you need to do. But like most things in life, like if you thought about, I'm going to become a doctor and you thought about all the things that you need to learn all at the same time, you're like, that's impossible. But that's not the way we do things. You break things out into bite-sized chunks and you figure out like, okay, I need to create a business and you know, I'll let's complete that task. Where am I going to be? How am I going to practice medicine? What's going to be my protocols? What other legal issues do I need to, you know, get done? My malpractice. And so you break it on its chunks. And then, you know, once I told them in February that I was out, then it was just like, I actually created my, my business PLLC was created on my dad's birthday after he had passed away, which I was like, we have to do it this day. It has to be this day. And my brother was a lawyer. So he was like, I'm going to make it happen, man. Uh, so we did that. And then I sent the email the following day to my company uh, that I was leaving. Uh, and then for the next three months, it was just like getting all these things in order. I created kind of a checklist of the things I needed to have done by the end. Um, our clinic was unique because we had a, it was out of a medical, it was out of a trailer. Um, it was like a food truck trailer. Uh, but we had, uh, I had it custom built to be a clinic. So a company in, Illinois was building it for me. And so it was like a constant back and forth with them. Like, where are you at? And when they were, it was going to get delivered. And so I was trying to line up the dates of when they were going to get the clinic here. And then I had to, you know, make sure the inside was all appropriate and get all this stuff. And it was a lot of serendipitous things that happened, but there was a, I had to learn a lot more fluidity because nothing is hard and fast when you leave a hard and fast system. Like all of a sudden you're in charge 
and everything's more fluid. So the pandemic was really having an effect on supply chain. So the trailer went from being like two weeks delayed to three weeks delayed to two months delayed uh, by the time I actually got it. Uh, and it's like, hey, like I can't do anything about that. That's just the way that it is. So I had to learn a lot of new coping skills because I wasn't built like that. Like it's this is the way it is. It needs to be on time. It needs to be hard and fast. And so I had already set my quit date. And so when I ended up leaving my previous job, my trailer hadn't arrived. It didn't arrive till the following month. So there was four weeks of me sitting around doing nothing and just waiting. And that was like the weirdest thing of my life. Because from the moment I set foot in a school as a child to the moment that I graduated from residency, I had never stopped for any long period of time to do anything. So in that one month of being down, I was hanging out with my kids a lot. And I realized like my, my kids annoy the crap out of me because I've never been with them for longer than three hours at a time without my wife. And so my wife ended up going back to work. She found that she loved being a CrossFit instructor and they asked her to be a CrossFit coach. And she's like, well, now you're not working and it's going to be more fluid. So now I can go to work because there's more time available for me when you're going to be available. So she started going to do that. And so now I got the kids for eight hours in the day. And I was like, I have no idea how to be a stay at home parent. And this is stressful. And so I learned a whole another part of my life that I had inadvertently neglected where it's just like, yeah, my kids are a pain in the butt and I need to figure out how to work with it. And so like that whole year and a half, you know, outside of medicine at home was like the greatest learning about being a better dad and understanding how to be more conscientious and mindful and, and, and level-headed and not get frustrated. And, and, and so that was a big learning experience for me outside of medicine in that, because like now I get to spend all this time with my kids and it's fun to say that, right? Like, oh yeah, I could spend all this time with my kids. But in actuality, you're like, I've never spent more than three hours with my kids by myself. What am I going to do? So, and granted, my wife would go on vacations and stuff, but it was like, this is a limited time for this. I'm like, the next four weeks between the time that I left and the time that I'm going to be unadulterated with my kids every single day. So it's like, how do I keep life interesting here? And how do I just not lose my cool? And so, yeah, my respect for my wife went like a hundred million fold because I already respected her before. But after experiencing it for myself, I was like, good God, it's been like five, six years of that. I just couldn't, you know, fathom that. But I mean, now I could because it's very different, but that's an ancillary thing. So there's a, there's definitely a lot of components. Like we talked about, like everything is so multifaceted. Like you can't just say like the medicine changed. Yeah, that focusing on building the clinic was fun, but there was so many other things in my life that all had to reevaluate, readjust and do all that. So it's terrifying when you start to, think about that because you're just like home life professional life you know what do I want to do myself what are my life goals and all that kind of stuff so yeah it was it was definitely a uh, a maelstrom of chaos uh, and then once I did open the clinic it continued to be chaos because then it's like oh I didn't think about this oh I didn't think about that oh I didn't think about and then you're trying to like fix things on the fly uh, and adjust and and patients are coming in and you're like, well, what's my intake process? I, I was the only one. I didn't have any staff. So now I'm like, oh, shoot, I don't even know what intake process looks like. So let me get that all squared away. Oh, people call me in the middle of clinic and I don't have anybody answer the phone. So how am I going to handle that? And so 
it was a lot of these like really mundane details that you don't think about when you work at a big place because there's a bunch of people doing a bunch of stuff and you're just focused on the one thing. But here it's like, nope, you're doing everything or I was anyway. Uh, and so it was a lot of just like troubleshooting. But again, I feel like a lot of that made me better as an individual and as a physician because now going back into a bigger clinic, I can appreciate the level of work that my MAs are doing. I can appreciate the level of work that my office manager is doing. I can appreciate the level of work that my front office staff is doing. And as a result of that, I can be a little bit more courteous to them as much as I tried to be before. Now I actually know what will be beneficial to them for me to do to offload some of the stuff that they have to do. Um, and so it makes me maybe not a better physician for patients, but it makes me a better person and a better, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, employee, well, maybe not employee, but a, a better, uh, you know, professional partner to be around uh, for my employees. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely, I guess the bottom line is it's terrifying, exciting uh, and everything in between. Uh, and you shouldn't feel guilty about leaving because there's so much more benefit to be had. And even if you end up going back to medicine, like I am, you're a very different person than when you left. Like the level of stress that I feel, the level of care that I gives uh, for a lot of the big stuff, like they'll come into my office and be like, hey, you have to do this. And I'm just like, I don't have to do anything. If you want to fire me, you go right ahead, but I don't have to do any of that. And uh, yeah, because I mean, as long as it's legal and a lot of that, like in my mind, I'm like, there's a lot of things in medicine that can be go either way. But sometimes people are like, oh, well, this is the, this is a, you know, way that this, you know, company does things. And I'm like, okay, well, that way's dumb. And I'm not going to do that. And as long as you don't tell anybody that I'm not doing it, I'm not going to tell anybody that I'm not doing it. And nobody's going to care because that's inefficient for me. And this is the way it's going to be. Um, so and I also think people are pretty open to that. Um, I, I really like what you're saying is that when we make a choice, and I think it's so important for people to remember that when we make a choice, we can always choose again later, right? And yep. so it can seem big, hairy, scary, life-changing, but then if we hate it or it's not working out, we can always choose again. Yep. And I love that. <laughs> um, I remind myself of that all the time too, when I'm like, okay, crossroads, crossroads. I tell my uh, daughter that all the time. She's like, my son will be like, she just said that she wanted to do this. And I'm like, okay, well, she changed her mind. And that's okay. You can change your mind. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And we forget about that. And I think especially when you are de you dedicated yourself to be a physician since you were nine, right? This trajectory of your life. Mm -hmm. And even though that's still what you were or are as a physician, the way that you are going to deliver care is completely different, right? And so it can seem like um, you're going to disappoint a lot of people when in reality, Life goes on and everything, like your wife said, is fine and always fine. will be fine. Absolutely. So I have a feeling that you becoming vegan is a big part of your story as well. And we really haven't talked about that. So gotcha. can you, yeah, can you give us a little insight into that? Uh, so like many things uh, in my life, my wife was the driving force behind that. Um, and so I was in residency at the time. And so... Uh, back up a little bit. When I was in medical school, my wife and I had gotten married uh, and we were living together and she went on Accutane. Uh, and when she went on Accutane, her triglyceride levels went through the roof. It was like, they were fine before normal, but then they were like 600, 700. It was something astronomical and it was absurd. And uh, 
the doctor was like, we can either take you off the Accutane or you need to change your diet to get these triglycerides under control, which we were very much like standard American diet. We didn't really care what we were eating. We were just kind of going about our lives and we were young. So it wasn't having any significant impact anyway. But my wife was like, we need to eat better or I need to eat better so that my triglycerides come down because I don't want to come off this medication. And I'm like, whatever you want to do, I'm here for it. So you want to eat healthier? Let's do it. So we cut out a lot of like red meats and a lot of fatty foods and we started eating less processed stuff. And it had a huge impact on her triglycerides. They came down to normal. She stayed on the meds and it was fine. We weren't vegan, but we were trying to eat healthier. Um, then fast forward like three years, I'm in residency and uh, like halfway through residency and my wife watches a documentary, Forks Over Knives. And I get home that day uh, from my shift and she's like, we're going vegan. No, first she's like, I need you to watch this documentary because we're going vegan. Because my wife's smart. She's like, educate, and then you'll know why we're doing the thing. Uh, so I watched the documentary and I was like, look, I get it. I hear it. I see it. There's absolutely no way that I'm going vegan. Whatever you do here at the house, like if you're going to cook all the vegan food and do that, I'm cool with it. Like I will eat that way. I will support you. I'm a hundred percent here for you. But when I go to the the hospital or the clinic, I'm just going to eat whatever they have. And I'm just going to keep doing the thing. And she's like, okay, well, we're going to try. And I said, okay, fine. So she started cooking vegan at home. Well, like most things, the things that were happening at home started coming to work with me. And so I started eating healthier at work because I started feeling good at home. And so, and then on the weekends, some of the weekends I wouldn't work. So I'd be vegan for like four days in a row. And I'd feel much better after those four days than I did after my regular days. And so I was like, oh, let's start doing this. So I did that for like six weeks. After six weeks, my, or I was eating like really, maybe like 80% vegetarian uh, for like six weeks. And then we did our OBGYN um like trauma class is basically like CPR training, but for OBG uh, obstetrical and gynecological emergencies. So we did that in our residency, everybody finished and we were in Corpus Christi at the time. So we had a big bonfire after everybody passed their test and we were grilling outside and it was a big old thing. And there was like 50 verse more people there all from our program, all the different, you know, residents and stuff. And it was a big thing. And we, and it was a thing that we do every year. Um, and so I was like, oh man, hot dogs and ribs and all the things. I haven't had that in like six weeks. I'm going to, I'm going to eat it. I'm going to get it. So I had ribs and hot dogs and burgers and the whole thing. And then I felt like garbage for the next week and a half. It tore me up. I just, I couldn't think right. I couldn't work right. My physical body just felt weak. I just felt messed up. And I was like, never again am I eating anything made out of animals. And I didn't like from that moment forward, I was like, I'm done. I'm, I'm not eating meat anymore. And like, sometimes like I'd, we'd go to restaurants, like at the early parts of switching from vegetarian to veganism and all that stuff. I would go to the restaurant and I order like enchiladas cause I was eating cheese early on. Um, and then there'd be like bits of meat in the sauce that I would like, I wasn't thinking about stuff like that. And so I'd eat it and then I'd be like, oh no, no, that didn't work. Like I would realize it after the fact, or sometimes I'd be like, ah, it'll be fine. And I'd eat it and then, nope, it's not fine. Um, and so it was a lot of like physical things that began to happen that really pushed me to make a huge change. And so since that time, it's been reaff reaffirming and redefining a lot of that and then starting to look into the medical benefits from that. And so I found a group called the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. 
and Dr. Neil Barnard is the main guy for that. And he had just created that committee like one year earlier before I found it. Uh, or my wife found it and was like, hey, you should look at this. And so I started pulling resources from there and looking and he was tagging like studies and stuff. And I started researching that. Uh, and then we found uh, the, the lifestyle medicine, um, the American Academy of Lifestyle Medicine. Uh, and then I started following them and started really kind of looking at all this stuff and getting into the literature. And I'm just like, hey, why the heck are we not like doing this? And then all the, you know, documentaries that came out around the time like Forks Over Knives came out um, that I was like, man, like this is, there's a problem here with the way that we're eating. And I, and I recognize that because I made the change, hesitantly made the change. Um, and I've had a huge benefit from it. Like I can think better. I'm fitter. Um, I don't feel like garbage every day. I can eat a ton of food and not feel miserable like five minutes later. Um, it's, 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 it, it, it makes a real difference. And so that's really when I started to pursue it was after like I personally had made the change. Then I started looking at the health benefits for it and looking at it from a professional standpoint and seeing like how big of an impact diet is having on our entire community and how Oh, what's the word here? How intentionally blind everybody's being to it because there's a lot of money there, right? So, um, so yeah, so that's kind of really what got me to underway. And I always tell my patients, I'm like, if you were to talk to like 12 years ago me, that guy would be very disappointed in today me because 12 years ago me was like, we're never going to be vegan. That is the worst thing you can do. Vegans are a bunch of hippies and crazy people and there's no reason for us to ever do that. And today me is like, Dude, I can run faster than you. I can live healthier than you. My cholesterol is better than yours and smarter than you. Like, yeah, I'm in a better place now than I was 12 years ago. And that guy was a lot younger than I am now. <laughs> Amazing. That's so funny. <laughs> well, I think we've covered everything unless you want to tell us something else about your life? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I think this is just a thing that I tell a lot of my patients and, and a lot of people are very interested in this. So I feel like it'd be a thing worth sharing for people that are listening. So my kids have never eaten meat in their entire life. My kids have been vegan since they were born. One of the biggest issues that we had initially when we were taking my daughter to the doctor. So initially when my daughter was born, I was still in residency. And so we were taking her to a doctor that was one of my attendings was seeing her. And we had a good rapport and stuff and we would talk and, and all that kind of stuff. So there was never any big issues about her diet. And plus she wasn't eating, you know, like in the first six months, babies are just breast milk. But once we moved to Austin, which I was like, eh, it's going to be easy. Everybody's like a hippie in Austin. So we moved to Austin. We started seeing our pediatrician. And our pediatrician was like, oh, your daughter's vegan. Like, well, what does she eat? And so we kind of gave her the rundown. And my wife is very methodical about what my kids eat. And my kids are very mindful now about what they eat in the way that like, if you show them your, their plate, they can tell you exactly where, what's their protein, what's their carb, what's their fat and what doesn't belong there, but they really like to eat it. How old are your kids now? Eight and six. Yeah. And so... That was, so we always had issues with the pediatrician kind of being like, she's little, like your daughter's like on the lower end. 
but my daughter's like super smart and bright and she was going through all her normal developmental stuff. She's like, she's little, but she's hitting all her milestones. And I'm like, well, that's what we want, right? Like we can't fix little, but we can fix milestones and she doesn't need to be big. And so then you like fast forward two years, my son's born and he's about the same age that we started thinking of the pediatrician. And she's like, oh, he's like in the upper, you know, like he's a little bit on the bigger side. And I'm like, they eat the same thing. <laughs> like you were getting mad at us for not feeding her and he's eating the same stuff that she was eating at the same volume. He's just a bigger little dude. Um, and so a lot of it is just like the people don't really want to educate themselves about it. Like when we talk to doctors, just generally across the board, there's a lot of poor nutrition education there. And so a lot of the education and lifestyle education that I have came from my own personal motivation to do that. Because when I was in med school, we had a one hour lecture that was optional on a Friday night. Like who the heck's gonna go to an optional lecture at eight o'clock on a Friday night? Like I get that like we're in med school and we're supposed to be professional, but we're like 22 years old. Like there's no freaking way. And so I actually did go to that lecture cause I'm a nerd. But, but yeah, but that's it. That was it. That was like the whole lecture was just a one hour thing. So a lot of my education has come since then, actually, since my wife was like, Hey, you should follow this physician's committee for responsible medicine. And I started to read a lot of data and information and watching podcasts and video series and reviewing research articles and, and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I don't like to say a lot of stuff because, you know, on my Instagram, I, I post videos about stuff and I don't like to say a lot of stuff without there being some evidence to suggest that that's true because we can get into trouble or you should be getting into trouble if you're saying things that are not true in this or supported by data. But yeah, the nutrition issue is problematic. And so I think that starts to feed that, like that pediatrician could have had a huge impact on my daughter's upbringing, would my wife and I not have been as resilient as we were, and could have started her down a path of poor dietary habits, which then create disease, which then create all sorts of other problems. And so that's where we need to start is nutrition for these providers that are seeing kids, that are seeing the general population, because it's super critical. There was a point where that provider actually said, oh yeah, your daughter's small. It's probably fine if you take her to McDonald's and get her some fries and some nuggets and stuff. And I'm like, are you out of your freaking mind? Like, I was, my wife was like, yeah, we're done. We never went back. That was like our last visit with her. Cause I was like, there's no freaking way. Like, I can't believe you just said that to me. Like, there's no reason that you should be recommending that. Like, I get it if you want her to eat a little bit more fat, but there's a better way to get it in versus like a processed French fry with a ton of sodium on it. Like, come on lady. So yeah, it was, that's the kind of thing that like infuriates me where I'm just like, you can't be that naive about the way that diet affects your kids. And my daughter's favorite, I always say my daughter, my son also, their favorite meal is tofu broccoli rice. If that's all you gave them forever for the rest of their life, they will eat it. They'll eat sushi. Like we'll make sushi here at the house. We'll get seaweed. We'll put rice in it. They'll put tofu on the inside. My daughter's a huge avocado fan. So we'll put that for her. My son loves bell peppers, raw, uncooked. We just cut them up and put them in there. And that's what they'll eat. Cause that's what their palate is refined for. They don't know a whole lot of other stuff. Like we've, everything that they've eaten has been plant-based for the most part. 
yeah, on the off occasion, they'll get those plant-based chicken nuggets. Like today I sent them home with sent them to school with like chicken, plant-based chicken nuggets, but that's not uh, consistent. That's on an off day or whenever we go to birthday parties, we'll let them eat ice cream or whatever, cupcakes, like dairy stuff. Like we don't want to subtract from their childhood either. But whenever like their friends, they know that they're vegan and they're plant-based. Sometimes their friends will buy a separate cake that's dairy-free or, or it's vegan. And my kids will get all excited about it. And the kids whose birthday it is is all excited to show them like, hey, look what we bought for you on my birthday. Like, this is great, you know, because as much as we can get all caught up with what adults do in society, kids are super loving and they love sharing and they love being there for each other and they love supporting each other. And so, yeah. That's like been so interesting to watch my kids just run with it. And my son is like a little, he's like a heart, that dude's going to be an activist. Like kids like walk up to people and be like, do you know that that has cow's milk in it? You shouldn't be eating that. It's bad for the cows. You're hurting their feelings. Like he makes you feel like super guilty about it, which I'm like, more power to you, man. If that's what you want to do, you go for it. But yeah, and a lot of it is information, right? Like they know where it comes from. Like where does chicken come from? It comes from chickens. People kill chickens to get chicken. And then they're like, oh, I don't want that to happen. Okay, well, that's why we don't eat the chicken. It's like, oh, where does milk come from? Well, cows have babies and then the dairy farmer takes the milk from the cows. Well, shouldn't the baby cow be drinking the milk? Yes, it should be, but it's not. It's being processed and, you know, and we explain those things. We haven't shown them any like super graphic videos or anything like that, but we explain the process for them as simple as possible. And they get it because they're empathetic. They still have that empathy for animals. And so we don't ever want that to go away. And then obviously it's good for their health, but, but yeah, as far as like things, I think people should know, it's like your kids can be vegan and it's perfectly healthy and it's perfectly fine. And there's a lot of studies that show that uh, aside from the fact that your kid may be a little smaller when they're young, they actually grow up to be the same size as every other kid, if not a healthier weight. They actually, I think kids that grew up being vegan or plant-based, their BMI tends to be on the lower half of a normal BMI range versus all of their peers, uh, which are on the upper half or obese or overweight or obese. And so, yeah, it's perfectly fine. <laughs> so I have one last question and this sure, is sure. directed at you. So Dr. Davila and I worked together years ago. And I just have to say that you are just bright and glowing and passionate. And you just seem like a different person than when I knew you. And of course, we were in clinic days where we're <laughs> in our patients and doing all of that. But my question for you is, how will you know that you're still in the right place a year, two years, five years from now? with working in this, again, back in this traditional type of clinic, and you made this one transition where you were going out on your own, how will you know? What is your internal check-in that you're gonna do just to make sure that you're still passionate and glowing and excited the way that you are right now? I think one of the biggest things for me, again, also learning in this experience is, I'm the boss of me. I do what I wanna do, and nobody can dictate, dictate that to me. And I had lost that in a lot of my training because I was very much that kind of character when I was young. But you get into medicine and you realize you are not the boss of you. The system is the boss of you. And the system is going to dictate you to you what you can and cannot do. 
And you're okay with that because the system's going to give you a bunch of money because now you're going to be a doctor and you get all these benefits and you're okay with it. And then for me, along the way, I made a realization where I'm not okay with that. Like, I'm the boss of me. I need control and I need autonomy to do th things that I think are right. And so that's why I left. And that's why I created this clinic. And the only reason that I'm going into this new place is because they said, you're right. You are the boss of you. And you being the boss of you can help us be better. And so that was the one of the reasons that I transitioned into that space because I'm like, okay, now I can have a bigger reach where I don't necessarily have to be the one seeing the patients have an impact. I can create something that's going to have an impact that other people can replicate that's going to have more benefit. So I'm just doing what I think is right professionally because I think that it's going to have the best outcome for people and the best outcome for society in general. And the moment that that ceases to be true, where I'm the boss of me and somebody dictates to me that, no, you're not the boss of you, you need to align yourself with our ideals, then we're done. Because I'm not going back to that place. I'm not going back to the place where I'm compromising on my values to meet your values that I don't agree with. We're not going there. I've been there. And I hate that place. And I hate the person that I am when I'm at that place. And we're not doing that. And so if that ever comes up in the future, which hopefully it doesn't, but with this, if the system stays the way that it is, inevitably it will, then we'll have to reassess and kind of go to the next thing. And so, but yeah, right now everything's aligning. I think we can have a, I can have a bigger impact than I could at my previous clinic, which for me is kind of the biggest goal. But yeah, as soon as that stops ceasing to be true and I cannot be the most genuine version of myself at my practice, then we're done because then my patients suffer, I suffer, and my staff suffers. I think your wife might be part of that too. She'll probably keep you in check. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Oh, well, and not to make this any longer than it needs to be, but like the last six months, I mean, it was almost like a, every two weeks, she was like, what the heck is wrong with you? Like, you're so angry all the time. You're so frustrated all the time. You just seem like you hate everything. You're snapping at everybody. You're miserable. Like she was very much making it evident to me that I was not who she married. And so that started initially. I was like, ah, it's just a bad week. Ah, it's fine. Like you're just reading too much into it. And then as time went on, I'm like, this is the 20th time that she's told me this. It's not just a bad week. There is something wrong. And that's when I really was like, yeah. So yeah, you're absolutely right. My wife is very much like, hey, you're broken and I don't like it. And I appreciate that from her because, you know, as much as life gets difficult, that's how I know I married the right person because she actually cares that I'm doing okay. And that when I'm broken, she wants to see me fixed. And so there's other people that, or if our relationship was not as good, she would have been like, all right, I'm out of here. You're broken and I don't want to deal with that. So yeah, absolutely. Having good support people around you, especially a spouse, makes a world of difference and they can see stuff way before you ever do. Shout out to Mrs. Davila. <laughs> Shout out and props. <laughs> yep. yep. Well, we could talk to you forever. Yeah. Well, questions just keep coming <laughs> as we're talking, but we Absolutely. really appreciate you. Absolutely. I'm happy to do yeah. it. We're so grateful. You're our first male guest. 
first <laughs> Latino in oh, yay. the very last day of Hispanic Heritage Month. So. Well, I'm glad to be both of those things. <laughs> uh, so well, how really. can people find you? Yeah, so unfortunately, our clinic, my clinic right now is closing. December 19th is our last one. My, the email, ad, or sorry, the website is atxvegandoc.com. I'm going to be updating all of this stuff to the new clinic that I'm going to be at in the coming months. So people can go to the atxvegandoc.com and they'll find where I'm at. Most people can just Google my name and you can find me anywhere I'm at at that moment. I've taken down a lot of the contact information for the old clinic. So a lot of it's going to be for this new clinic, but people can email me at atxvegandoc at gmail.com, or they can just find me on Instagram at atxvegandoc. Try to keep it simple. Not too many words, right? atxvegandoc on Instagram. Perfect. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are so happy you're here. We look forward to bringing you more stories from the healer's journey on healthcare from the soul. If you've loved this podcast, please let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts to support us getting the word out. As our gift to you, we'll send you a meditation. Just screenshot your review and email us at healthcarefromthesoul at gmail.com. Thank you. And until next time, we're sending all our love.